0: and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, my home office uh, bookcase, there's a a section set aside for several Steve McQueen DVDs, beginning with the first season of his TV show, Wanted Dead or Alive. That show ran from 1957 until 1961. I guess that's maybe not quite that long, but almost as how long I've been a fan. I'm not sure why, maybe it was his cocky, bad boy attitude. I always was more kind of the color try to color inside the lines, you know, I tried. He had lots of fans, he was a huge star, he was the highest paid actor in Hollywood for a time. Uh, but his fan base didn't always include the actors he worked with, or some of the directors or producers. And taking a quick look at his story, you might understand why. His biological father left six months after meeting his mother. According to some biographers, she was an alcoholic who wasn't able to care for a young child full time. Growing up, he was passed from his mom to his grandparents and a great uncle, and in between, he survived a couple of abusive stepfathers. He ran away from home when he was nine and got introduced to petty crime through a street gang, even joined a circus at 14. After threatening to kill his second stepfather if he ever laid a hand on him again, he was deemed by the court to be incorrigible and sent to a reform school in Chino. It was the Marines later on that finally got him on the right track. After finding his way into acting, he seemed to have found his his, uh, place and the public found him. Still though, he would drink too much and smoke too much and really never lost his competitive, sometimes combative attitude. His mugshot from a 1972 DUI arrest in Alaska really says it all as he flashes the peace sign for the camera. He had a legendary whoop, where'd it go? There it is. He had a legendary run-in with Yul Brynner on the set of one of the greatest westerns ever, The Magnificent Seven. There was no love lost between the two. Uh, Brynner demanded that during his scenes everyone stand at least ten feet away and stay perfectly still. McQueen said, well, that's not his style. So he would be in the background shaking shotgun shells or twirling his gun or, or uh, wiping the brim of his hat or something that might divert the camera attention. Furious, uh, Brenner accused him of trying to steal every scene. He even refused to draw his gun in the same st- scene with McQueen, not wanting his character to be, get outdrawn. The animosity lasted for the next 20 years. As he became famous, he became more demanding. He had the unusual reputation of demanding uh, free items in bulk from studios when he agreed to do a film, things like electric razors and jeans. It turned out he was sending those things to the reform school where he spent his teenage years and continued to visit from time to time. He became a Christian late in life, and before his early death from cancer, he called Yul Brenner uh, and apologized, and they were reconciled. Now, Jacob, the star of our Old Testament lesson, uh, was another troubled youth who faced a lot of problems in his life in spite of being God's chosen. Some of them he brought on himself. Uh, some came to him through no fault of his own. And others he was clearly complicit in. But God still used him. And it's just, uh, our story is just one scene from a longer story that uh, goes something like this. First I want to say that if more people knew there were plot lines in the Bible like this, I think a lot more people would have read it by now. Jacob's life had been quite a journey. His mother's pregnancy with him was nothing short of miraculous, a literal answer to prayer. But once Rebecca did find herself with child, she didn't have an easy go of it. Jacob and his twin brother Esau um, wrestled and struggled with each other, even in the womb. When the babies finally made their appearance, little Esau comes out first uh, with Jacob right on his heel. Literally, Jacob was holding on to one of Esau's heels. That's where Jacob's name came from. It means takes by the heel, or put a, a less literal way, a cheater or supplanter. In the Bible, names carry a lot of baggage, and Jacob grew up to be the heel he was named for. In his ancient society, the eldest brother got most of the goods, a double share of the inheritance, a special prophetic blessing from his father before he died, and the right to head up the clan. Well. I didn't sit well with the uh, barely younger brother Jacob and, or his mom, and they plotted to see that it never happened. It was, uh, you know, If this was a, a Netflix series, you'd be hooked already, right? Earlier in the episode, older brother Esau was pressured into selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew after returning home from a hunt exhausted and famished. It was an epic fail on his part, but God will hold him to it. Then Jacob tricks his blind, dying father into giving him the blessing that was meant for Esau. Esau is so angry, he vows that as soon as the required period of mourning ends, he's going to kill him. On his mother's advice, Jacob gets out of Dodge in a big hurry, journeying some distance to Uncle Laban's house where he plans to hang out until his, his brother cools off. Along the way, God comes to him in a dream. Um, But instead of lowering the boom on him for his dishonesty, God tells Jacob that he's going to bless him, just like his father promised when he thought he was Esau. Land, descendants, everything. The biggest blessing that would come through Jacob's line would be Jesus. Only in the Bible would lightning not flash out of the sky and roast him like a marshmallow over a campfire for what he'd done to his brother. But then technically his brother had given it away. That promise was first given to his grandfather Abraham, then to his father Isaac, and now to Jacob. And the whole world has been blessed through them, through Jesus, um, through the forgiveness of sins that he made possible. One of the things that makes God's word so totally believable is how brutally honest it is. How it presents even these heroes of the faith with, with all their strengths and weaknesses, their family dysfunctions. If God's hand wasn't in it, what believer would ever write this stuff without cleaning it up a little bit, without sanitizing it a little? So don't tune out yet, though. At Uncle Laban's, our cheater meets his match. Laban is like the con of all time. Jacob falls head over heels in love with his cousin Rachel, which was, I guess, acceptable in those days and still may be in some parts of the Smoky Mountains. Uncle Laban makes him the deal of the century, though. He says, work for me seven years and you can have her. Well, not having any other means to, to pay for her, according to custom, Jacob agrees. Gladly, she's evidently worth the wait. And the days and the years, well, they fly by. Finally, the big day comes. There's lots of feasting and celebrating and wine. And near the endi- you know, as the evening draws to a close, Uncle Laban brings his daughter to Jacob all veiled up for their wedding night. The next morning, the Bible says, behold, or behold. Surprise, it was Leah, Rachel's older sister. Well, he's more than a little beside himself and understandably upset. And uh, Uncle Laban pleads that, well, it's just a matter of custom in his country to give away the older daughter first. And, And didn't you know? Sorry about that, you know? I'll tell you what. Work for me another seven years and you can marry the hot sister, Rachel. And so he does. Now he's got 14 years invested, two wives, children, and not much else. So he works another deal with Uncle Laban to begin acquiring flocks and herds of his own. And even though his uncle does his best to cheat him, uh, God steps in. And through some miraculous breeding techniques, Jacob becomes a wealthy man. And not just a family man anymore, but a clan leader. Now he's been away from home for 20 years. His parents are both dead, and God tells him it's time to head back to his homeland, um, the land we promised him when he was first heading to the hills to get away from Esau. Our lesson this morning takes place along the river that borders that homeland. He's a little nervous about meeting his brother again, but it has been a long time. And besides, who could stay mad for 20 years? Still, just to be on the safe side, he sends a messenger ahead um, with word that he's on his way. Well, word comes back that Esau's already saddled up and on his way to meet him along with 400 of his well-armed friends. Uh, it doesn't look good. But this isn't quite the same Jacob who who, who he was before, who passed that way 20 years before, the cheater, the schemer. Now, this is a Jacob in whose life God has been working and molding and challenging to create a new character from the inside out, honest, God-fearing, on a mission. And he prays a prayer the old Jacob would never have prayed. He says, O Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promise me I will surely treat you kindly. And I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. It's quite a humble prayer for someone who used to be so bold. People can change. Especially if it's God who does the changing. So he decides to grease the machinery with a little brotherly love. A generous gift of goats and sheep and donkeys and cattle, hundreds of them. I guess he figures he won't need them anyway if he's dead. And so he sends his family across the river without him. Surely his brother wouldn't attack women and children, would he? He spends the night alone to see how it all plays out. It turns out sort of alone. Twenty years before, when he camped out under the stars, he, he slept like a baby. He dreamed beautiful, angelic dreams. But not this night. And this is a very mysterious passage of scripture, Did he hear noises in the darkness, a crack of a twig maybe, a leaves rustling on the ground. All scripture says is that a man appeared and the two of them wrestled until the break of day. Not like a dream this time. It wasn't a dream. He wasn't wrestling with his pillow. This was the real deal. Scholars are all over the board about who this might, man might have been, but we get a good clue from the Bible itself from the book of the prophet Hosea. In chapter 12, he makes a reference to Jacob. He says, In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. To the man Jacob was wrestling with sounds like the pre incarnate Christ, Jesus, before he was born into the flesh. And it's not the only time he makes an Old Testament appearance. All his life, Jacob had struggled against God by the independent way he walked his journey. But God had a plan for his life, and it was a plan he wasn't going to turn away from because it involved his plan for the salvation of the whole world. For most of his life, Jacob had preferred doing things his way. And now, having been changed by that same God who refused to give up on him and had let life teach him some pretty hard lessons, he engages in one last bout. Now, this one's not to see who will win, but rather to see if he'll finally, once and for all, uh, give in to the greater In true fashion, Jacob refuses to let go. All through the night they wrestle, Jacob clinging tightly for all he's worth to that angel, to God. It was a battle he never could have won, a natural man could never uh, pin a supernatural heavenly being. Uh, And to make that point clear, at sunrise the the, the, the man simply touches his thigh, and when he does it, dislocates Jacob's hip, hip joint. Still, though, he hangs on, unable to fight any longer, but refusing to let go until he receives a blessing, and a blessing he gets from the greater to the lesser. You know, what is your name, the angel asks. Jacob, he answers. But his name says the deceiver, the cheater, the heel. From now on, he says, uh, not anymore. And Jacob realizes that his lifelong struggle hasn't been with his brother at all or Uncle Laban or any man, But with God and God's plan for him. Your name will be Israel, the angel tells him. Israel means he strives with God, or in another sense, it can mean a prince. And Jacob renames that place Peniel, or the face of God, because he saw God face to face there and was spared. His whole orientation had been changed. Jacob survives his reunion with his brother, beginning with a heartfelt apology God's plan stays on track. And Jacob goes on to become the patriarch of the 12 tribes of the nation's Israel. Happy endings all around. Long, painful road to get there. It's a great story in and of itself, but there's more to Jacob's story than th- 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 going on here. Underneath his story, it's really our story. Great insights into how God changes people. How he can turn even a scoundrel into a saint. Now We all wrestle with life from time to time. And that can lead to a struggle with God because we tend to blame anyone or anything on our troubles but ourselves, our boss maybe, our friends, our spouse, even God. But sometimes the root of our problems doesn't lie with any of those people, does it? It's rooted here, in our hearts. Now, we might not see it, but others probably do, and certainly God does. Our all-powerful, all-knowing God can know us and, and our best future better than we ever could. <clears throat> then maybe you'll allow a little crisis in your life to get your attention now and then. Not send it necessarily, but allow it. The world has more than enough potential crises waiting to, to uh, you know, crash into your life already. Too many to really expect you're going to be able to dodge any, every one. And God won't do it just because he's bored. He won't do it just because he wants to mess with you. In the big picture, the big sense, he wants to help you, okay? We're not perfect people by nature, and so we're not drawn to God by nature. And so we don't tend to change until our fear of change is exceeded by our level of discomfort, understand? Jacob knew that he was over his head in his wrestling match with the Lord, but he also knew by now that his best hope was to cling to him no matter what. That's another step toward change, the, the, the commitment phase. It wasn't about winning the match. It was about surviving the battle. You know what winning at life is ultimate going to, ultimately going to be? Going to sleep in faith here someday and waking up in heaven. It's God's gift. The battle for that gift, the price paid, was fought and won at the cross. Surviving daily battles until uh, then is really just part of that journey we, we make through this fallen world. Jacob was committed. He was as persistent as the, the, the woman standing before the judge in our gospel reading. He was willing to stick with the situation until he worked it out. It wasn't a situation that he was enjoying, but he wasn't going to let go and back off either. If the last 20 years had taught him anything, it was that God keeps his promises, that he'd been there with him through thick and thin, and that he always would be. See, God can turn our situation for good. Maybe not according to our timeline or maybe not according to our plan, but he sees and he cares about us. You know, I think some people miss God's best in their lives because they, they get frustrated and they walk away much too early. You know, think about that. We're talking about a God here who exists in and outside of time. So don't let yourself get discouraged. You know, when you're praying about something, keep on praying. People say, well, didn't God hear me the first time? Sure he did. Of course. But prayer doesn't always work by changing God's mind. Sometimes it does its best stuff by changing ours. By changing us. It it reorients reorients us like it did Jacob. Away from the mirror, away from ourselves, and back toward God. Face to face is the way the Bible, toward his face, the way the Bible puts it. Attitudes and actions and habits and fears and weaknesses that took years to develop may have to be peeled away one layer at a time. So don't give up. Stay committed to getting God's best by letting him reveal what is best. Only God can see around every corner of your future, behind every door. He won't fix a problem. We won't admit we have. But when we say, Lord, I'm in a real mess here, a mess I got myself into, and I need your help to get out, then God will go to work. The problem sometimes is that we fight God too much. You know, maybe we're a little afraid to open ourselves up to that kind of change because we're afraid it'll go way beyond what we think we need. Maybe we think too much change will be too embarrassing or too obvious, or maybe we'll lose some of our friends over it. Maybe we need to. Maybe we need to. Whatever challenges, whatever temptations, whatever uphill battles life has put in in the path of your journey to heaven, God is bigger than them all. And the best part is that no matter how you appear on the outside, um, how tough, how stubborn, or even how broken, inside God sees the person that you can become because you got a new name the day you were baptized. Christian, follower of Christ, child of God. He's already gone to the mat for you on Calvary. Jesus took our place there. He endured our punishment for us and emerged victorious from the empty tomb on Easter morning. Let him share that victory with you. Now, sometimes it takes being broken to be made whole. Sometimes it takes getting lost to be found. But in the end, in the end, it's worth it. Amen. Now, may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.